FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After a long holiday weekend, it's time again for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope all of you had a restful and meaningful Memorial Day holiday. We have a lot to talk about with our panel on today's show, so let me get right to introducing them, starting with the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman. And Tamar, we're particularly happy to have you on the show today because it happens to be your birthday. Tamar, a very happy birthday to you, and thanks for being willing to do the show when you're celebrating a big day. <laughs> thank you, Bill. I thought I would be able to kind of skirt underneath the radar today, but thank you so much, Bill. Not going to happen. Well, we're really glad you would be willing <laughs> to spend your birthday with us on Political Rewind. Uh, Jeff Graham is back with us. He's the executive uh, director, of course, of um, uh, uh, Georgia Equality, been the executive director for a couple of decades now. And Jeff, we're always glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Bill. It's always uh, great to be on the show. And we have uh, two of our favorite law professors, constitutional law professor Fred Smith, who's at Emory University, and Anthony Michael Christ, professor of law at Georgia State University. For Anthony, uh, you spent a good part of the holiday weekend working on your book project. Uh, very quickly, tell the, I don't, we've never asked, tell our listeners what you're writing about, just in a brief way. Yeah, it's it's basically a, a history of constitutional law through the the lens of American politics from 1828 to the present. So it's a pretty hefty task, but looking forward to being done this summer. You have a title? Uh, we're working on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Fred, uh, you're enjoying some time off, yes? Uh, yes, I'm at a. Uh former colleague and friend's home up in Martha's Vineyard. So it's been a, a relaxed oh. three-day weekend. Well, thank you, too, for being willing to join us uh, while you're uh, uh, in, on the island. All right, uh, let's get right to it tomorrow. We're not going to spend a great deal of time on the debt ceiling uh, negotiation compromise uh, today because we're going to get into it in much more depth tomorrow with your colleague, Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter of the AJC. But we do need to start by talking a bit about it. Um, late last week, uh, the White House and Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office announced they had found uh, grounds for a compromise uh, to uh, uh, their negotiations, which had been pretty intense for some time. They've issued a 99-page report they're calling the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Um, and let me just, I'll go over just a couple of quick things that it does. It puts spending caps in place for two years. Uh, it addresses the conservative policy concerns about rescinding about $28 billion, clawing back $28 billion in unspent COVID relief money. It pulls back money, something like a billion and a half dollars from the IRS because Republicans felt that the $80 billion that the um, Inflation Reduction Act gave to the IRS was all about trapping rich people in the IRS's clause. Um, and um, it will restart federal student loan payments after a pause. Um, this, of course, contrary to what President Biden wanted to do, but as we'll discuss a little later in the show, in the long run, it's going to be the U.S. Supreme Court that will decide whether the loan forgiveness plan is constitutional or not. And it does add a work requirement to a very limited number of people uh, who are on getting uh, food benefits. So all that said, Tamar, we are, it goes to the Rules Committee today in the House, and that's the first big test as to whether Republicans think they've gotten enough out of this measure, and some don't. It's really now a question of whipping support on both sides of the bill. There's been a weekend of messaging now, press calls from the White House. Um, 
internal calls with party leaders speaking with members, but there's a question of whether this deal is going to stick and whether both sides are able to deliver the votes. Um, what can House Leader Kevin McCarthy do? He has the narrowest of GOP majorities. It looks like there's a rebellion on the right flank. Is he able to deliver enough more centrist Republicans uh, to, to the deal, especially when there's many House Democrats who think, well, we don't need to help you on this. This is your deal, Kevin McCarthy. And then, especially in the Senate, you have a question of how many Democrats are going to be able to, to, to join in, especially when there's plenty of folks who say, what's really in here that a Democrat would want? Um, you know, this, this was something where Republicans were pressing for things from the president. Why are we supposed to help this along? Of course, there are carve outs in the bill, especially for people like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Um, but today is going to be all about counting. It's going to be all about looking people in the eyes during closed door meetings that all the different sides are going to have House Republicans, Senate Democrats, and kind of figuring out where everyone is. Do they have the votes to cobble this together? It may very well be the type of thing where we see more centrist Democrats and more centrist Republicans kind of link hands and jump off the, the cliff together. Or do they come up short and maybe there's more wheeling and dealing, which hopefully won't happen because it seems like June 5th is the, the drop dead date. You mentioned the Rules Committee this afternoon. Normally, that's the type of thing where the speaker rules that with an iron fist, whatever the speaker wants goes. But as part of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy had to make to become speaker, he put three Republican hardliners on that committee. Um, what happens if they don't like it? Um, it's not often that you get help from the minority party in the rules committee. We may be headed down some unknown territory. This is why Tamar Hallerman's many years of covering the Hill comes into play on our show today. Thank you, Tamar, for that wonderful setup uh, for what's going to happen today and tomorrow. They, they do expect to take a, a vote on the floor of the House uh, tomorrow on this measure. Anthony, uh, Tamar mentioned uh, that there are some hardliners, especially on the right, who are uh, adamantly opposed to this bill. One of them is George's uh, Andrew Clyde, um, he's uh, he says that he is a quote hard no on the disastrous debt ceiling deal, um, and he says just look at what House Republicans passed last month compared to what they're settling for now. So he's a no. Uh, Buddy Carter, on the other hand, a, a conservative member of the delegation, says he's going to support the bill. And of course, Anthony Marjorie Taylor Greene, very I think. In, in this in this really um, strategic way that she's adopted, says she'll support McCarthy on this measure, guaranteeing her an ongoing kind of leadership role with McCarthy and the Republican conference. Anthony? Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the more interesting dynamics of, of the debt ceiling crisis and, and the le legislation that's come out of it is that we're seeing some of these these you know, coalitional fractures and fissures in the Republican Party uh, show up in, in some predictable ways like Andrew Clyde and maybe some unpredictable ways like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, we also have, you know, just right right across the road, uh, Nancy Mace out of Charleston, who's a kind of moderate member of the, the caucus, come out this morning against the, the bill, which is unusual. Um, and at the same time, Thomas Massey, who's this kind of unpredictable libertarian, um, not an establishment friend, um, on the rules committee say that he's going to pass this out of the rules committee. So there's this, there's a real hodgepodge here. Um, I, I think that the question isn't whether this will pass the house. I think it certainly will between centrist Democrats, many Republicans. Um, I, I think this, the real question is, is can, can Kevin McCarthy survive, um, coming out of this uh, without being faced with a motion to vacate from one of these rogue members, right? Because it only takes one person to challenge his position as speaker. And, and I think that could be a very embarrassing um, uh, pro problem for him if that's where th that's the direction one of these members wants to go. So I, I think that's the real question going forward. Well, I, I, that's going to be fascinating uh, to watch. And you're right. Kevin McCarthy has staked a lot of his future on making this deal with uh, President Biden. But Jeff, at the same time, President Biden is getting a lot of heat from the progressive elements of his party who are saying he gave away too much. And, and what they, the way they frame it, of course, is, is, is this. Early in, these, uh, in the debt ceiling crisis, which it is, um, Biden said, I'm not negotiating. 
I we have to raise a debt ceiling, period. If Republicans don't want to come along, the blame is on them. And then, of course, the president got deeply into negotiating and some Democrats think gave away too much. Jeff. Yeah, well, certainly, Bill, I think that uh, part of this is uh, be careful what you wish for. Uh, the Democrats could have taken a vote. Uh, in the lame duck session at the end of 2022 and avoided all of this. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I think that at that point in time, they were hoping to to expose the the mess that uh, some of the leadership on the Republican House uh, that we've seen. <clears throat> um, you know, I, at, at this point in time, I do think, and I do frankly hope that some cooler heads will prevail because I think that uh, you know, crashing the the world economy, uh, uh, especially as the U.S. economy has uh, seems to be stabilizing uh, <laughs> significantly um, and finally coming uh, back uh, relatively strongly. Um, but we're still pretty in a in a very weak and vulnerable position. And so I, I actually hope that the cooler heads will prevail. Uh, at the end of the day, we should not be making a partisan political play. Um, over uh, funds that have already been spent. Um, you know, if they want to talk about reducing funds, if they want to talk about programs, you know, the, the budgeting session is about to start. And that's where those talks should take place, not in a crisis uh, like, like this. And I think that the entire situation is, is incredibly unfortunate and could have been avoided um, uh, in the past. Fred, I want to bring you in, but but let me bring you in with a question or, or a observation and then respond to whatever plus what I'm going to add. Um, there is no requirement in the United States Constitution to create a debt ceiling. <laughs> this is a this is something that uh, Congress uh, 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 put together in what the late 1920s, I think, um, as because of a after the First World War and concerns about spending. But it, there's no requirement. And, and there was a time when Democrats had control of all three branches that they could have eliminated it entirely. But please uh, comment on whatever you will, Fred. Sure, right. No, that's right. There is no uh, formal requirement in the Constitution for a debt ceiling. And the question really, when, you, when we think about what a debt ceiling is, as Jeff pointed out, it's whether the United States is going to pay its bills that they've already racked up. It's not about the creation of, uh, of new bills. And some people have pointed out that uh, there's language in the 14th Amendment um, that says that uh, the debt of the United States uh, shall not be uh, questioned, right? So um, so there's some question, and it's an open one, about whether or not a debt ceiling is constitutional in the first place. Um, I don't think that's a question we want to be trying to figure out five days before June 5th. <laughs> I mean, it, um, I, I, I mean it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question, and I hope it gets figured out, but uh, but it's not a very stable, um, you know, plan B here. Uh, and so uh, I'm also hopeful um, that we pay our bills and not uh, wreck the economy. And I, and I think that there'll be enough uh, votes, um, both in the Senate and the House for this, in part because of, you know, I don't think at the end of the day, anyone wants to entirely uh, wreck the, uh, the economy. <laughs> uh, if, like, even under the most cynical views, right? And those cynical views, people don't want to wreck their own bank accounts and people don't want to wreck uh, the accounts of their of their donors and their voters, right? So uh, even under the most cynical views, I think they're going to have to figure this out and they will. We got Fred's constitutional law professor view on the debt ceiling, but here's my jaded Washington view of all of it and why we still have it and why people didn't get rid of it. It's an opportunity to extract things out of your enemy, the other party. So even though you mentioned how Democrats had an opportunity where they had the White House in both chambers of Congress, folks remember what it's like being in the minority and having very limited leverage, especially in the House, being able to, to get stuff out of the president, get stuff out of the majority party. Um, yes, while you're playing chicken with the economy and sending the markets into a tailspin, it's a great opportunity if you're the minority to get some stuff. And so that's why we still have it. And that's why these next you know, it's always going to end in a fight, unfortunately. Um, though, what could happen if this gets rejected? Um, we talked a little bit about the economy becoming a mess, but, uh, you know, I was reading a little bit about 
the, the vote over TARP, which was the Troubled Assets Relief uh, Program back in 2008 when the economy was tanking. And that was an agreement that President Bush um, initially struck with, with both uh, sides of congressional leadership back in 2008. It was something like a $700 million package to save the economy. Well, President Bush wasn't able to, to deliver enough Republican votes. And the Dow lost something like 800 points. It, it really messed with the economy um, even before we um, hit any sort of debt ceiling. And so it would just be catastrophic if if the, the parties were not able to, to get to something this week, even if we, we haven't quite hit the, the debt limit date. Yeah, uh, Jeff, I don't think I'd want to be a staffer in the congressional office of a Republican or a Democrat who, if they fail to reach a deal, wants to field the phone calls from all the Social Security recipients who suddenly are not getting their checks as just one example of what could happen if they don't reach an agreement. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, all of us are are at risk, uh, you know, either personally or uh, people close to us. Um, you know, uh, my, my mother depends very much on those Social Security uh, checks. Um, I, we have a lot of people uh, that we advocate for here in Georgia that uh, very much depend upon Medicaid and Medicare spending to continue to come down the line. I, you know, I, that's what folks need to think about is certainly at risk with this. And I really appreciate, you know, uh, Tamar, your, 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 your take on this, because yes, it is uh, at the end of the day, all about politics. Um, uh, I, it's just, it's a really high stakes game that is being played right now. And uh, I think in the past, uh, many of us could feel a little bit of a certainty that it would get resolved uh, at the last minute. Um, I don't know uh, that I have that same uh, belief mm -hmm. uh, in the institutions. They have been weakened so much over the last uh, few years. And, and, and I'm very concerned about what may happen this time. Um before we leave the subject, um, F Fred and then Anthony, I'd love to get each of you uh, uh, involved in this. As I read, I haven't read the, the, the um, compromise itself, but I've read the reporting on it. And it strikes me that, uh, as is often the case in these things, there's a lot of optical illusion in this. In other words, there's a lot in these in these uh, so-called compromises that appears to give one side or the other what they've asked for, but when you start looking into the fine print, really doesn't change much at all. And and that's where I think the politics of this become even more interesting. Who wins, who loses as this thing moves forward? Fred and then Anthony. Yeah, so I assume you're pointing to things like the fact that in 60 days, the repayments are scheduled to uh, to start when that was what was going to happen anyway. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and that, that does, of course, speak to the politics of it, right? Both sides can come out and claim victory, um, and but not total victory. Um, you know, and that's where compromises tend to uh, tend to be made. A lot of this is uh, optics. I was a little surprised um, with President Biden yesterday on Fox News um, when he said, well, I can't, I can't I'm not going to claim victory because uh, if I do, that's going to hurt the cause with your viewers. But in the process, he was implicitly claiming victory. But yeah, but, 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 no, but I, I think you're, I think it is fair to say that some of what's present here is, uh, is the status quo. Anthony? Yeah, I, I think that's very much true, I, even in the work requirements, right? So, um, right, there's an expansion in technically who gets covered for these work requirements, but at the same time, there's all these added exemptions um, that, yeah. that seems to relieve a lot more people of the work requirements. In particular, um, there's a definition of homelessness that doesn't just cover people who are unhoused, but covers people who have uh, kind of instability in their in their home life, um, which is much more broad than what one might think just by the kind of the, the, the you know, the, uh, a surface level analysis of what's happening here. So I think that there's a lot, a lot uh, more going on here. And I think at the end of the day, what we really see coming out of this particular piece of legislation is what we would have seen come out of a regular budget process um, with a Republican House and a Democrat majority in the in the Senate 
and a Democrat holding the White House. But what we've really done is just taken the crises off the table. Um, and, and I think that's that's really a good thing for the country. It's a good thing for the economy. And it's a large win for for Joe Biden and with, you know, some small wins for for the House GOP, too. But this really isn't earth shattering and it's really not not really going to change the equation any in any really significant way. Tomorrow, one last quick word before the break. Yeah, it's all a question of what you can bring home and show your constituents that you got. Republicans can say that they got extractions out of Joe Biden. They can put out their press releases and say, look what we got. For Democrats, it's more of a question of what you took off the table, just as what Anthony was saying. You're taking off the table the, the potential for fiscal calamity right before the 2024 election, which for Joe Biden is critically important, given his, his uh, current approval ratings. All right, um, we're going to get to our first break and come back with a lot more on the show today. By the way, hold off your tweets, hold off your emails to me. I earlier talked about Democrats controlling all three branches of government. Of course, what I meant to say was they control the House, the Senate, and the White House. So I know that. Just stop with the the tweets, okay? Let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Anthony Michael Christ, Fred Smith, Tamar Hallerman, and Jeff Graham join me for today's Political Rewind. Jeff, I want, I want to start um, this conversation with you, given that you're the executive director of Georgia Equality. In June of 2015, the United States Supreme Court issued one of its most important rulings, I, I think it's fair to say, certainly of the 21st century up until that point, legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states in the Oberfell v. Hodges case. Um, And it felt at that moment that the LGBTQ uh, uh, community was at last being um, recognized as members of our everyday lives and that things were starting to turn in an extraordinarily positive direction for uh, uh, people who um, are uh, gay. Um, And yet, in the past couple of years, and especially in the last year, we're seeing more and more anti-LGBTQ legislation in Republican legislatures around the state. 538 reports that there were more than 50 bills, anti-LGBTQ bills, in legislatures around the country just in this year so far alone. And then we've had um, right-wing activists going after businesses. And the one that was so distressing to me was to see the target, one of the, I think it's fair to say one of the country's most beloved companies in many ways, which used to celebrate Pride Month, which starts in just a couple of days by rolling out LGBTQ merchandise under attack, moved all that merchandise in some stores to the back of the store, used to be out front, eliminated it in some stores. Uh, so speak to us about where this turn uh, uh, to the right has gone and how how you feel about what's going on out there. Yeah, thanks, Bill, for, for bringing it up. I mean, it's it's actually a, a very, uh, very dangerous time uh, uh, for folks who identify as LGBTQ uh, here in America uh, and, and those who who love and, and support us, um, you know, and certainly uh, we've got two amazing constitutional law experts uh, on the panel today, but I actually think that uh, it's important to remember that it was just 20 years ago in June uh, 2003 that Lawrence versus Texas, uh, uh, the Supreme Court declared that, uh, uh, you know, uh, people identified as lesbian, gay and bisexual, that our sexuality uh, was not subject to government control. So um, that actually, I think, is what established our our rights and, and the foundation for the wins on same-sex marriage, the wins on non-discrimination that we have seen through the Supreme Court uh, ever since then. Uh, I think that's also uh, the fundamentals of what is going on at this time politically, is that it is not just 
uh, challenging our right to love the person that we love. It is challenging our right to exist. And that's why you see very specifically attacks happening on transgender individuals, why you see attacks happening on transgender youth in specific and LGBTQ youth uh, and culture uh, and art uh, more broadly happening uh, everywhere from book bans. I know we're going to be discussing what's going on with drag bans uh, later. Uh, and yes, uh, more than 50 bills have been passed into law, but nearly 500 have been filed. It has been a tsunami around the country this year. Uh, and, uh, and while it's, I think everybody is, is looking to see how the corporate community is going to respond, uh, while it is incredibly dangerous, and people need to understand that, what has happened at some of the Target stores uh, around the country, primarily, I believe, in the South, Target has, has not really talked a lot about how many stores have been involved or where they've been, but I think anecdotally, uh, we know that a lot of them have been here in the South. Uh, but frankly, uh, what I hope that Target will do is that these are people coming into their stores uh, and being destructive. Uh, and instead of caving to that political pressure, I hope that they would be more resolved to prosecute the folks that are doing this um, because they are in a small minority. And I really Mark, uh, uphold and and I'm glad that, that Target... I uh, had moved things to the front of the store. Um, our history, our culture, um, us as LGBTQ folks, we should be celebrated uh, during during Pride Month, and that's not something that that we should uh, that we should allow to be swept back to the back of the store or hidden because it upsets a few people that were upset anyway. Um, I apologize for interrupting you for a minute, but I wanted to add one element to this tomorrow. Of course, pe people are very familiar with what happened to Bud Light. Bud Light, in a very small gesture, uh, uh, gave some exposure to uh, Dylan Mulvaney, a uh, transgender influencer um, who uh, Bud Light sent her a can of Bud Light with her picture on it, whatever. I mean, it was virtually nothing. And um, the right-wing activists came after them. Sales of Bud Light have fallen dramatically. The two executives at Anheuser-Busch responsible for this have been uh, suspended. Have, and, and so all of this leads to this whole question, I think, and Anthony and Fred, I want you to join us on this, um, of why, what's happening when it's even small numbers of right-wing activists having such a big impact on businesses like Anheuser-Busch and Target. Yeah, and, and the company said recently that it was going to focus all of its marketing campaigns on music and sports, trying to get out of anything that could be perceived as political. And of course, these companies, if they had it their way, they don't want to be in the political lane. They want to appeal to as many people as possible. And for brands like Bud Light, especially, where I understand that over time sales have decreased, they're trying to appeal to new markets and, and maybe corners of the of consumers that wouldn't naturally go to them. So they were trying to appeal to to trans people um, by doing this, this influencer campaign with, um, with Dylan Mulvaney, um, but to see how much that's bitten them in the short term. Um, and I think it's a crucial moment. You're seeing Republicans, especially former President Trump, Ron DeSantis, going after uh, <laughs> diversity and inclusion initiatives, anything that could be seen to them as, as being, quote, woke. Um, and it puts these companies in a really tight spot. I mean, they they only want to broaden their their uh, appeal to, to folks. So what do you do when all of a sudden that puts you in the center of the political ring? And I don't think anyone has figured out what to do because no matter what, you're going to anger people. And of course, you don't want to alienate any customers. Um, and I don't think any of them have figured out how to walk that line yet. Anthony? So I think what we're seeing here is there's an intersection between the interests of capital and corporations and the interests of a changing uh, social dynamic in the United States where the average median person is much more accepting of LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ rights um, and diversity writ large than some of their older consumer bases. Um, and it, certainly as 
um, you know, generational cohort replacement happens, we're going to see with with younger consumers a much more diverse set of consumers and consumers who are much more embracing of diversity as well. And I think that because of that, right, because of that intersection of, of capital and this social change, it's really a warning for social conservatives who've been really hell-bent on, on pulling back as much as they can on LGBTQ LGBTQ rights and the progress that's been made, um, right? That this is like this is kind of like the last moment that they can really try to affect change. And and so they're lashing out um in these really strange ways, I think, um, right, to things which are relatively minor, like uh, right, like the Bud Light campaign, which is not even really a campaign, right? Or what Target is selling. Um, and so we're really just seeing, I think, folks who are severely agitated because they see the writing of the wall and they see where the United States is going long term and they're trying desperately to to change that. Um, and so we're just living in some very scary times because there's going to be, I think, considerable social social agitation um, until some of that, some of those issues gets, gets resolved. Yeah. Brad, I agree with that. And I would also say that in this moment, there's a kind of everything everywhere, all at once strategy, not to, not to Milan, that beautiful movie, <laughs> but I think it, it fits the, the approach that's being taken here um, in terms of just the, the sheer number of States, the sheer number of companies, the sheer number of things that, um, that gin up the outrage machine. I mean, all the way down to write the Amanda Gorman poem in South Florida, right? Um, yeah. And so it's so so at this particular uh, moment, there's this kind of feeling that now you know you can just kind of latch on latch on to anything that will generate uh, outrage, and as a result, the reason why that's a, a you know in some ways effective strategy is because it makes it very difficult to figure out what to concentrate on at any given moment right so when you have so many things happening right um it's it's hard to kind of i mean you, you recall a few years ago it's more than a few now when indiana passed uh, a RIFRA bill uh, under mike pence and all energy sort of went there and they had to rescind it the same thing happened when it came to north carolina uh and um and and the the bill that protected trans folks there um so so you, you've seen these sorts of moments um before um, but what's happening now is it's kind of hard to kind of say, well, it's that place doing it, or it's this company doing it, or it's this place doing it. Um, and that's, and that's the point. I do think that it's, it's temporary. Um, but in this particular moment, you know, it's, it's scary. Um, so for, you know, for folks, um, especially trans folks, uh, trying to live, um, their lives, um, this kind of, this, um, this emboldening of that dimension of our culture right now, um, you know, makes it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a scary place to be. And there are people, I mean, I know folks who have literally moved, um, from Florida, uh, to other States because of fear for their safety. Um, Jeff, two points. Um, one is, um, I don't want to uh, forget about what I think is the largest issue here, which are all of the gains made by the LGBT community, primarily, certainly since Oberfell, uh, in 2015, the acceptance of, of, of the community in the larger world around us um, was such a celebration for me. And it feels so uh, troubling that it's right now we're at a moment where perhaps those gains are all evaporating around us. But as Anthony points out, some of this has to do with the fact that the people who are passing this kind of legislation are realize their days are numbered and that the larger diverse a country is all for some of this stuff. And finally, the other question is, Georgia passed a what many people think is a very uh, distressing transgender youth uh, bill. Is the climate in the Georgia legislature as anti-LGBTQ in a more general way? Well, I, you know, it, it all depends upon your perspective. Uh, you know, uh, certainly it is far more hostile uh, towards uh, the LGBTQ community than what we have seen in recent years here in Georgia. Um, uh, you know, Georgia has always proud, uh, prided it, uh, its uh, legislature and legislative environment on being a, a, a moderate place. Um, 
And we have been able to successfully fight back uh, against uh, LGBTQ legislation. Uh, the, the worst thing that had happened, frankly, uh, since uh, the amendment to ban recognition, recognition of same-sex relationships in 2004, uh, the worst that had happened last year was when uh, the legislature gave the power to the Georgia High School Association uh, to prohibit transgender high school students from participating in school athletic programs. Uh, and that was the tip of the iceberg. Uh, this year, uh, our bill uh, that uh, has been signed into law, uh, slated to go into effect on July 1st, will restrict access to hormone replacement therapy for adolescents uh, that uh, are at that point uh, in their transition process. Uh, it does have a grandfather clause. I think that's important <laughs> to point out that uh, kids uh, that are uh, on hormone replacement therapy right now will uh, be allowed to continue their treatments, uh, but it is going to prohibit it um, from kids that are coming up through the pipeline right now. And so it's really going to be harmful in the years to come. And I am aware of families that uh, are already trying to make a determination. Do they want to stay here in Georgia or not? And so we are not as bad uh, as as Florida or Tennessee uh, with some of the truly egregious, hateful legislation, uh, destructive legislation that has happened. But we know we're going to be debating these bills in 2024 as an election year. And uh, it until people start to lose their elections by supporting this extremist, hate-filled agenda that targets not just the LGBTQ community, but, a t but targets all marginalized and minority populations throughout the state until people start losing races on that, we're gonna continue to see this coming towards us. And that's what I'm trying to get across to members of the legislature. We cannot, we will not be able to appease these extremists. It needs to be called out for what it is. People will not stop with just a small victory. They're gonna want to go for the full thing. That's clearly a battle cry from Georgia Equality's uh, Jeff Graham. Thank you for telling us uh, your, uh, how you're going to pursue this, Jeff. Um, Tamar, let's add to this um, that there are in Florida, in Tennessee, we know, and in other states, um, this is extended to drag uh, shows. Uh, it, Tennessee has passed a law that bans drag performers from uh, 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 doing their acts in venues that allow children uh, to be uh, present. There have been for years uh, drag performers who've read children's books in schools. And it's, you know, the idea of men cross-dressing as women is as old as world theater, right? I mean, Greek theater had, unfortunately, no female performers. All of the female parts in ancient Greece were played by men. Japanese no theater is all about men playing women's parts. And who didn't love Harvey Firestein and later John Travolta <laughs> playing Edna Turnblad in Hairspray? I mean, this is an ancient tradition that is suddenly being demonized. Yeah, and it's something I'm sure Jeff and his group are tracking. Do we see similar bills in the Georgia legislature next session? Um, stuff like this tends to pop up in many state legislatures kind of all at once, or one state takes the lead and when it succeeds in one place, you see similar efforts crop up in neighboring states. Um, we saw that with the the transgender sports bills uh, that, that Jeff was talking about. We've seen that with the transgender health care bills. Um, that that were passed last year or sorry earlier this year so it's something certainly to watch and that could impact i mean georgia's atlanta's pride is in october um outdoor events in public places if if a ban like that is in effect that changes um the type of programming you might see at pride here in atlanta all right um it's something we're going to keep track of in a very careful way here uh on political rewind um we've got to get to our final break of the show and and i want to turn uh to to uh the supreme court when we come back how could we not with anthony price and uh fred smith as a, two members of our panel so we'll do that uh after we pause for our final break <music> At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The 2022-2023 session of the U.S. Supreme Court will be ending uh, in June. And as always, we're going to see them roll out rulings on some terribly important uh, cases that they heard uh, during this session. And um, so there are several of them. Uh, we'll get a chance to talk about them as the rulings come up. But uh, Fred, let me start with you. There are several that I was particularly interested in hearing uh, you all talk about. Uh, one of them, and certainly one of the most important cases, is whether or not the court is going to either roll back or eliminate race-based affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, Fred and Anthony, I'd love to hear each of you talk about that briefly. Sure. Right. So since the uh, late 1970s, um, quotas in admissions have been unconstitutional. So racial quotas have been unconstitutional. Um, What has been permissible uh, is for admissions officers to consider um, diversity uh, when it comes to what, what an individual is going to bring to an overall class. So, for example, it's permissible for a uh, for a, for a, uh, an admissions office to say we want people from all fifty states, right? Um, and it's also permissible, um, which is what's relevant here, is for them to say, and we want a racially diverse class as well. Um, it's permissible for them to say we want uh, people who's who have a connection to the institution. Um, through legacy programs to be able to come to the institution and so forth. Um, What's at stake here is whether or not um, that racial diversity um, can be continued, can can continue to be uh, a factor or whether or not it violates the the equal protection clause. Um, And the court seems poised to conclude um, that it is unconstitutional um, for uh, public institutions uh, to consider race and admissions and that it violates uh, federal civil rights law, um, so laws passed by Congress, um, for private institutions uh, to consider that if they receive federal uh, funds. Um, so the implications are um, are expected to be you know, significant, to say the least, um, and it'll raise a lot of questions about other programs, whether it be um, scholarships, uh, whether it be um, you know, you know, hiring decisions, et cetera. Um, so it's going to, you know, it's although this is about admissions, it's going to uh, almost certainly um, invite broader litigation. Anthony? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things that are important here. First is that the Supreme Court is not really operating in a vacuum. And so the, the court, first of all, has been, you know, kind of on this track for for quite some time now, um, particularly since the early 2000s when some of these these cases were heard um, before out of the out of University of Michigan, um, the court in, in basically signaled that there was like a quarter of a century left and we're almost at that 25 year mark. So I think, you know, there's there was kind of a suspicion this is where things were going. But I, I think it's also important for, for us to consider the fact that, right, the court's not acting and and try, and pulling back on, on affirmative action in a vacuum, right? We see, for example, in Florida and in Texas, legislation to actually pro, prohibit um, diversity, equity, and inclusion programming in higher education, you know, at, at a very, you know, kind of broad uh, in a very broad way um and so there's just there's a larger attack on i think diversity in the united states and it's and it's racial diversity it's it's you know sexual orientation it's gender identity there's there's a lot of agitation in society that um you know about the direction of the country and and the identity politics of the United States right now. And I think what we saw from last year with the abortion ruling, we're going to see in a somewhat similar way, where the Supreme Court is just going to pour kerosene on that fire. And and it's just, um, I, I think we're in a, for a very rocky June, not just because of that decision, but some of these other decisions that also implicate issues of of you know just fundamentally who we are um, as as a as a country. Tomorrow, um, we should say, as I think Anthony and Fred have made clear, that this conservative court, in hearing the argument, seemed pretty clear that they were, were likely to overturn uh, racial race-based admissions. Um, we should just say that this comes out of cases from the University of North Carolina and Harvard, but it's another example of just how crucial the, f- the fact was that Donald Trump got to appoint three justices 
to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and we now have a 6-3 conservative supermajority on the court that um, has appeared very keen to challenge long-standing uh, norms or, or precedents that, that the court um, has made in the last several decades. Uh, Clarence Thomas mentioned uh, in his uh you know, the in the ruling over the abortion case that he was interested in revisiting other kind of cases that many people view as kind of core precedent. So I think this is one of many examples where the court could act to change something that has been a given as, as long as I've been alive um, in terms of education. And I think there'll be many other avenues of American life where we could see major change in these next few years. Uh, Jeff, let's go to another one that goes back to our previous conversation. Uh, Colorado has an anti-discrimination law which uh, bans businesses from refusing to serve uh, same-sex couples um, or, 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 or individuals ba based on their sexual identity. Uh, 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 and, and now the Supreme Court is being asked to overturn that Colorado law. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very concerned uh, about what may come out with with that ruling. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, if, if the ruling does not fully uphold uh, the, the Colorado uh, non-discrimination law. Um, and I do think it's important to, to just point out that it covers more than just uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And so yeah. uh, in this particular instance, it is uh, someone who designs websites for uh, for marriages. Uh, there are no same-sex couples that ever asked her to design a website. She just preemptively uh, sued uh, under the First Amendment for this. So, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens. But uh, I, I hope that it would not invalidate all non-discrimination laws because that really would be chaotic across the board. Um, uh, it could really hamper our efforts here in Georgia. We've been successful over the last few years of passing 14 uh, local non-discrimination ordinances. We've got about 12% of the state population that now lives in a community where uh, they cannot be discriminated against because of who they love, who they are, um, or where they come from, or how they look. So, uh, you know, uh, this is an important bedrock of our society, and I really hope that uh, it, it is not completely decimated with the, this ruling. Uh, we're running out of time, but Fred, real quickly, uh, this goes back to your talking about RIFRA in Indiana, uh, because a lot of this is based on um, whether or not uh, religious organizations believe they should have a right to interject their religious beliefs into the commerce of the state, the country, whatever. In some ways, yes, except the actual legal issue in front of the court is free speech. It's not religion, interestingly. Oh, okay. Um, okay, and, thank you. All right. And, and so what the court is going to have to determine is whether or not uh, what this web designer does, um, does it count as, uh, as speech? And so you kind of have this clash of these kind of two really important American values, anti-discrimination uh, and free speech. But it is the case that she did this preemptively. This isn't, no one was making her design a website or trying to make her design uh, a website. Um, but, uh, but, you know, but she's taken this fast track to the Supreme Court. Frank, Fred, thank you. This is why I just talk for a living and I have experts like you to help correct me when I get something wrong. Real quickly, uh, Anthony, because we're running out of time. Uh, uh, finally, we already mentioned it briefly. Uh, the court is going to decide whether uh, President Biden overstepped his authority in uh, uh, calling for uh, student debt relief. And this does play into the court's efforts uh, in recent rulings to overturn the executive and administrative branches of government. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, what we're going to see is a couple issues is, first of all, uh, the court has to decide if anybody's been sufficiently injured by this decision to to relieve debt um, from from a number of borrowers. Um, and then, of course, whether or not the statutory authority is there for the president in order uh, you know, to to trigger this this debt relief. So um, I think, again, this is another scenario where, you know, it looks like a very plain, ordinary executive, you know, executive action kind of uh, question, but it's going to have real world implications for hundreds of thousands of Americans. And so the Supreme Court is really uh, potentially stepping in it once again, if they come out in, the, in a direction that hurts a lot more Americans than it helps. We are completely out of time uh, for today's uh, Political Rewind, but thank you for starting us off with such a smart conversation. Um, Fred Smith, 
Anthony Kreiss, Jeff Graham, and you, Tamar Hallerman, on your birthday. And we wish you a very happy birthday once more and hope it's a great, great day. That's it for us for today. We're back with another show again tomorrow. We hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.